I'm lucky that I've never suffered from allergies, but everybody around me seems like they're either stopped up or sneezing right now. And I guess the pollen counts are so high in East Nashville that the crackheads are trying to convert their meth back into Sudafed. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Tommy Womack. Tommy is a singer-songwriter. He's even written a book called The Cheese Chronicles. It's a true story of a rock and roll band you've never heard of. I think that explains it, and I highly recommend you pick up a copy. You can find out everything you need to know about Tommy at TommyWomack.net. I first met Tommy probably eight years ago when he played a bar in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, about a week later, I ran into him in Austin, Texas. And just a really easy guy to be around. I, I like Tommy a lot. And once I moved to Nashville, I got to know him a lot better. And he's amazingly open and honest in this little chat that we had. You know, Tommy was nice enough to invite me over to his living room there in Nashville, Tennessee. And we sat down and uh, I think he opened up a bit. If you hear some rattling in the background, it's his dog, Sheba. She kept jumping up and down. She was a cutie. But uh, we had a really nice chat, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Here's Tommy Womack. My name's Tommy Womack. I was born in a little town in western Kentucky called Sturgis. There was never a whole lot there. It's a, it's a very small place, and I don't remember much of it. My dad was a preacher, and uh, my earliest memories are really of West Paducah, where we moved when I was three years old in 1966. And that's kind of my first memories. Uh, dad preached at a country church called Milburn Chapel, Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and we lived in the manse, just uh, just across a little grassy area from the church. And that's the first stuff I remember. That's the stuff that's really idyllic in my head. Um, I remember watching uh, I Dream of Jeannie when it came on at night, and Batman, and the Green Hornet. And uh, I remember seeing the Beatles performing in a big stadium, and all these girls were screaming bloody murder, and these four guys were playing music with smiles on their faces, which confused the hell out of me because they were obviously killing these girls. They, <laughs> they were playing music, supposedly, but it had to be death rays of some sort. I, I, remember, I remember that vividly. I didn't see the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but I did see them 
on uh, what I know now to have been an ABC TV special called The Beatles at Shea Stadium. So that was my first exposure to them. Uh, I used to, I grew up there at the Mance, which was way out in the countryside, uh, west of Paducah. And um, my older brother and sister were at school during the day. So I played by myself and um, invented my own games and lived in my own head a lot. You know, maybe, maybe that's where some of the creative bug got started. Um, we moved to Madisonville, Kentucky in 1968, November 22nd, 1968, two days after my sixth birthday, and everything changed. Uh, it was a coal mining town of 18,000 people. All of them pissed off. Every one of them pissed off. Um, and I, uh, I wound up on a short dead-end street called Plainview Drive, and it's the other first time I'd ever seen other, other kids except at school. I was used to being by myself and peaceful and happy. Um, and I got deposited in, in uh, sort of the countryfied redneck version of a tough neighborhood. I was in my first fist fight within, you know, a month of being there. Uh, the first day I was there, this kid up the street, John Dozier, heard I didn't have to go to school that day because I just moved. And he started choking me. I mean, the first day on the street, I'm getting choked. I'm six years old. Everything changed, you know, and, uh, and you know, we carried on our life. Dad was uh, uh, preaching all the time, and Mom was a housewife and uh, kind of neurotic. Well, not kind of, extremely neurotic. Uh, Dad just watched television all the time. That's basically all we did was watch television. The television, if it wasn't turned on in the house, it felt insecure. It felt weird if the television wasn't on. Uh, and that sort of became uh, um, uh, another reality for all of us. I remember we were just singing the Brady Bunch tune before we went recording here, and the Brady Bunch was an alternate family for me. I mean, the, you know, it wasn't a fun household growing up. Dad was kind of pissed off all the time. Mom was neurotic and sad all the time, and and the television was always on. We were always watching it, I guess, just to keep from talking to each other. And uh, so, you know, I and I've heard this story from other people that we lived through the Brady Bunch. You know, they were our ideal other family, you know. Growing up early, I didn't know Bill Monroe. I didn't really know, uh, knew a little bit about Elvis. Didn't really know anything about Hank Williams. My parents, for some reason, my dad loved Boots Randolph. We had every record Boots Randolph ever made, practically. And we had some of these Reader's Digest 6LP compilations of hits as performed by the Living Strings Orchestra. You know, We had a Tennessee Ernie Ford gospel record, but none of his country stuff. The one country record we had in the house and the one record I hear that makes me warm and fuzzy like a kid inside is the best of Eddie Arnold. What's he doing in my world? That's the stuff. That that hits me right to the core. I, I love me some Eddie Arnold. Um, and uh, I picked up on all the music as, as I grew as a kid. Um, 
the first record I ever had that was my own was Joy to the World by Three Dog Night, and I played that over and over and over again. Then the first record I ever actually bought with my own money was Crocodile Rock. Uh, it was a different time then. We lived and died by the music that we liked. Um, I don't know that kids these days um, appreciate and live for music the way we did. Um, you know, it. You know, as I got further into school, seventh grade, eighth grade, about when it started happening, uh, your favorite band was part of your identity. You doodled Kiss logos or Aerosmith logos. If you were a real good drawer, you did the Aerosmith logo in your notebook, you know, at school. Um, it was your identity. You hung out with fellow Zeppelin fans or... Uh, uh, if you were a band nerd, then Billy Joel fans or whatever, you know, that, that was part, that was part of your life. And when I first saw Kiss on television in eighth grade, that changed everything. Absolutely. It split my life right in half. There's life before Kiss and life since Kiss. I don't know that most people will say, I don't know that a lot of younger people understand what it was like where we would somebody in our neighborhood would get a new album and all the kids would come over and we'd sit quietly and listen to the entire album without mm. anybody saying anything. And then when it was over, we might comment on it and then listen to it again quietly. Mm. I don't think people have that experience anymore. I don't think people really bring home a new album and are excited about it and sit around with their friends and open up the gatefold sleeve and look at it uh, and really absorb it. Um, in our neighborhood, Terry Cates down the street had an AMC Gremlin, one of those great old AMC compact cars, and he would get the latest 8-track. And what we would do is me, Terry, Jeff Browning, Jennifer Trailer, we would sit in his Gremlin and... Uh, listen to, you know, I remember when he got Aerosmith Rocks when that was a brand new record. We sat there in his car and listened to it on 8-track. Uh, we did the same thing uh, with, uh, I remember there's an Edgar Winter group record that we listened for, to for the first time in his car. And the windows would fog up. There would be rivulets of steam drops <laughs> running down the inside windows uh, cause we were just sitting in his car running the battery down <laughs> and that's how I discovered a lot of really great formative music in, in Terry Cates' Gremlin back in 1976, 77. Yeah, yeah, uh, word would get around. I kept hearing about Led Zeppelin, um, People think now probably that Led Zeppelin were on television and the radio all the time, and it was really more underground than that. Three Dog Night was on television all the time. I knew who Three Dog Night was, but Led Zeppelin, uh, no, no, it was a, uh, it was, it, all of rock and roll was way more underground than it is now. You had to buy Hit Parader magazine or Cream magazine or have a really cool. FM radio station, which we didn't necessarily have, that we had one really cool album rock station that came out of, uh, near Fort Campbell or somewhere like that, and you had to kind of stand on one leg just the right way in order for the station to come in, you know.
But that's where I first heard Led Zeppelin was on that station. I remember hearing Good Times, Bad Times for the first time, and um, that knocked me for a loop. Um, you discovered all the music through your friends. And, you know, I started with Kiss, but then Cheap Trick took over after that. And uh, The Clash, uh, I read about The Clash before I heard The Clash. I read about the Ramones in Cream Magazine. I used to buy the Cream Magazine at Robards Drugs down on Center Main Street in Madisonville. And uh, it, that, those magazines became a Bible to me. I've, I've still got them all in the shed out behind the house. I got every Cream Magazine uh, I ever had, and that was an education. Uh, you knew what bands to start looking for. And sometimes you had to drive to Evansville, Indiana to find those records but you knew what to look for. And uh, we had one record store called The Sound Shack, and it was like record stores were, like grimy still is. Um, it, was, it was a place where you congregated. It was almost like a bar. I remember going to the record bar in the Greenwood Mall in Bowling Green as a college student, and it was the perfect name for it because it was all, all that was missing was the drinks, you know, <laughs> and a dancing license. You know, other than that, I would go there to hang out and just riffle through the records. And, you know, the people like Jeff Sweeney and Jody Loveless and Mo Lyons and Matt Pfeffercorn and Mike Grimes. I first met Grimey working at the record bar. Uh, these, you know, you learned so much in a record store and it was human. It was way more human than, uh, than browsing lines of text on the iTunes app as if the names are supposed to mean something to you. You know, you can browse in iTunes. You can scroll past 800 names in uh, the rock section. But they're just words on a screen. You don't have anybody to tell you, uh, oh, that's cool. Y'all, if you like that, then listen to this, you know. It, I don't, I wish, I missed that. On Western Kentucky University's campus, there was one building that was white, and it was called Schneider Hall, and uh, it was a girl's dorm, and the story goes that somebody somewhere had the bright idea to import all these white squirrels. I don't know they're albinos. I don't know what, but uh, squirrels apparently breed like rabbits. And yeah, there's there's tons of white squirrels up there. It's it's a thing. I didn't know we were the capital of the world with it. I've traveled there many times just to see <laughs> the white squirrels. I've actually mentioned uh, on this show that I that I uh, blamed you somehow for the white squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I brought him in a suitcase. <laughs> Bad gigs. There's been uh, there's been a few of them. Yeah, I've been doing this uh, 28 years now since Government Cheese got started, uh, which doesn't feel like 28 years at all. I don't feel 50 years old. I don't know what 50 years old is supposed to feel like, but I've got 28 years of um, there was, uh, some seriously bad ones, uh, that I made bad myself. Uh, one that happened, uh, 
uh, in my Drinkenstein days. Um, I'll just, uh, it's on my most recent record. And uh, if you hear a little rattling around there, folks, that's my dog, Sheba. She's just jumping around all over the place. Um, this happened in 2008, I think. I went to Indy in the rain to a club that was never going to have me again. A bottle of Chianti in the passenger seat, 90 miles an hour down a dead-end street. I was lonely, lonely. I was tired. I worked for myself, and I still get fired. I came from Cleveland with a gun, six strings on it, and I play every one. I love the Lord, or at least I try. Where in the hell will I go when I die? I like the stones. I like dogs. I like late-night drunk dialogue. I went to Indy in the rain to a club that wasn't ever gonna have me again. A bottle of Chianti in the passenger's seat, 90 miles an hour down a dead-end street. I turn my foul-ups into rhyme. Life takes up a whole lot of my time. I still like titties on the street I see, but I'm not as horny as I used to be. And thank God for that. It's a pain in the ass, waiting for the pangs of conscience to pass. Now I just drink, except when I don't, and you're either going to get a good show or you won't. The highway's alive with a dangerous man, acting as foolish as I possibly can. I drive on to Indy to play my show, or maybe just play half a show and go and drive on away with wine and weed, thinking a spanking is what I need. I find me a hotel, get off the road, get into bed and feel kind of cold. I didn't get busted, nobody died. I got me tomorrow to show a new side and throw out the bad keep all the good. Right now, I don't even know if I could. All of my blessings and all of my gifts teetering off the edge of a cliff, drinking and driving all week long, dancing with the devil, looking for songs. I've done everything I could to kill myself and take other people with me. By all rights, I should be in prison. The Lord is my shepherd, but Lord, how I want. I went to Indy in the rain to a club that was never gonna have me again. A bottle of Chianti in the passenger's seat, 90 miles an hour down a dead-end street. <laughs> I've wanted to ask you before, the first time I met you was in a a club in, in Indiana. In a club in Indianapolis, yeah. Was that the... Uh, no. That no. wasn't the gig? That was a very positive gig. This gig that I just rapped about, uh, I was at a really low point. I was tired of playing for five people and, and driving 400 miles just to do that. I was tired of the grind. I was um, I was tired of being me, and I was drinking. And if I take a drink, I'm going to take eight of them. There's no glass of wine with dinner and uh, then turning in for the night for me. And I was... I. I had a really bad attitude to life, the music business in general. I was fairly convinced I sucked. You know, <laughs> I wasn't any good at this. And uh, and it was just time to 
sabotage everything. It was just time to be nihilistic and negative. I, th- I thought it was time to do these things. It, was, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but I really did have a bottle of Chianti in the passenger seat next to me, a big old jug like an Italian wedding feast or something, sticking it on my elbow and turning it up uh, while I'm driving. And uh, I am the luckiest man in the world that I didn't kill anybody, uh, that I didn't get arrested. Uh, there's certain, certainly nothing amusing about doing that, but that's how low down I was. And uh, I hope to never be in that place again. Uh, that was a bad gig because I made it a bad gig. I came into that club, Spencer Stadium Tavern in Indianapolis. I came in there that night looking for a fight. <laughs> I wasn't looking to play a gig. I was looking for a fight. And I got one because I just sat down after the first set. There were seven people there. And I just sat down for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Club owner comes over to talk to me. And I wound up doing a second set, but he, the club owner had already gotten pissed off and left. And he wrote this big, long, nasty email to my manager that I've never seen to this day. Uh, and I've, I've heard he, he's not the manager there now because I want to send that song to him. I want to track that guy down and just send him a blank CD with a note that says, play this. In the program, they got something called Eight Step Amends, where you try to make it up to people that uh, you, you know, harmed in some way. And, and I, w- I would love to make amends to that guy. I don't feel good about what I did that night. I do feel good about the night in New Orleans when there was one coked up table sitting right up front talking all through my set, and I got so mad. I so mad. I'm not the type of guy who's going to tell the audience to shut up until I'm absolutely at the end of my patience, and then I overdo it. Then I just scream at them. <laughs> and I was screaming at him that night. And that inspired another nasty email to my manager. And, um, and you know, people talking while you're singing, it's like batting the surf with a badminton racket, trying to get the surf to turn around and go back. Uh, you just, um, it took me a long time to learn that you don't play louder to try to get over them. What you do is you play quieter. And they'll either hear their own voices and shut up or they won't. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's great that you talk about this stuff because uh, there's a lot of people out there who are just trying to get a few things going Mm -hmm. who um, might struggle with, you know, wondering if they are really cut out for it or not. Yeah. And it's good to know that everybody goes through. Everybody goes through this. It, uh, I, one thing I love about Nashville and uh, going to East Nashville and the family wash, and it's all musicians there. Half, you know, if it weren't for the musicians, the place would go out of business. And, uh, and the five spot and, and wherever else you want to go. And everybody is worried about being exposed as the fraud they are. Everybody's thinking <laughs> the same thing. I suck. I'm no good at this. And, uh, and of course, everybody's fantastic. You know, it's the most talented bunch of people you could ever hope to meet. But one after another, um, as you get to know people and they drop the guard a little bit, you find out, oh, he feels just like I do. I suck, you know? 
And this is a hard job to be a singer-songwriter just walking out on stage with nothing but an acoustic guitar and singing your songs. It takes balls to do that. It takes bowling ball size brass balls to do that because you're just opening yourself up to being emotionally raped and pillaged by an audience. The audience is almost the enemy. Some nights the audience can be the enemy. It takes a lot of courage to do that. And some nights, like that night in Indianapolis, I just didn't have the courage or, I, or the drive. All I had was liquid courage that night. I had plenty of that. Moving to Nashville was like going from black and white to color. Uh, I thought Bowling Green was a big city. Bowling Green was certainly the biggest town I'd ever lived in. And then Beth got a job doing the morning news on Channel 5. And we moved from Bowling Green to Nashville. And I went from living in a town that had one Chinese restaurant to a town that had three in walking distance. The Bluebird was a quarter of a mile from my house. I went to the Bluebird for the first time, um, my first or second night in our new house in Nashville. It was a whole new world, and it intimidated me for a bit, but then I fell into this band with Grimey and Will Kimbrough and Tommy Meyer called The Biscuits, and Government Cheese had just broken up, so I all of a sudden had a new band, and... The next two years, the first two years in Nashville were among the best years of my life because the Biscuits got pretty popular around town, and it was a jamming band. We, I had a ball playing with those guys. And, uh, and that was the vehicle that introduced me to so many people, and I've just kept on making music and uh, writing books about the music scene and stuff. One book, you know. It just grew, you know, I fell in love with Nashville the first night we lived here, and it's gotten to be a deeper appreciation ever since. Uh, I've seen, The town was growing like a weed when I got here, and I've seen the growth since I've been here. Uh, since I've been here, the Batman buildings happened, the Titan stadiums happened, the... Um, Bridgestone Arena's happened, or whatever name it is this week. By the way, name buildings and leave them alone. Stop this Adelphia Coliseum. No, it's not. It's the Bush Coliseum or whatever. You know, it's like they're are they going to change the Ryman Auditorium to the Pepsi Auditorium sometime? Is that going to happen? Um, so I've seen the town grow like a weed, and there's no other town like Nashville. It's just so full of talent and you would think it would be so heavy with egos and uh it's not every, all the musicians practically everybody i know the musicians and the singer songwriters everybody's nice because it's it's a given that you can play great and sing great everybody can play great and sing great that's no big deal what matters is can i get along with you well, well, I think you're a good idea to call if I need a bass player for a gig or whatever. And so everybody's nice. The big egos are the managers.
I had, it was 10 years ago, this time, uh, you know, almost exactly 10 years ago, uh, I'd been smoking a bunch of really potent weed for a long time, and uh, it wasn't working for me, but I kept smoking it, trying to get it to feel like it used to feel, and it wasn't happening, and one day I was uh, in the bedroom, and Nathan was four years old, I think, going on five. And uh, I just fell apart and fell down on the floor crying, and I couldn't stop crying. And somehow I got Nathan to daycare. Maybe he drove. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> um, I was just I was in really bad shape, and I stayed in bad shape for the rest of 2003. And I wound up in a really dead-end job. Um, oh, I got to back up and say that there was a series of gigs coming up uh, that I couldn't go on. And Beth, my wife, had to actually email my booking agent and explain that, yeah, I know Tommy can flake out. I know he's you know not the most reliable or stable guy in the world, but this time it's different. This time he's really gone over the edge. And I had... I cried every day, uh, sometimes constantly, for the next year and a half or so. And I was locked up overnight one night in uh, August of 2003. And uh, that'll never happen again. Um, I guarantee you that mental hospitals are not designed by mentally ill people. They would never build them the way that they are. You know, enough fluorescent light to film Citizen Kane in those things. Um, just, uh, they're cold. They're lifeless. They're very hospital-like. It's, you know, if you're going to put a mentally ill person uh, in a locked building, you know, give them some couches. Give them a widescreen television. Give them, you know, some, you know, a bowl full of fruit on the table. Uh you know, books to read, um, you know, carpet the place. Do, you know, try to make them comfortable because these are the people in the world that most desperately need to be made to feel comfortable if you're going to get anything out of them and get anything good into them. You know, and uh, out of that breakdown came a bunch of songs that I was writing on my lunch break from the job I had, um, and I wasn't writing them down. I was just writing them in my head. And if there's one thing I can do, I can remember a lot of lyrics and keep them in my head. And I didn't expect to ever make a record album again. That was part of the make, you know, nervous breakdown was I'd been making record after record after record, trying to make it, quote unquote, and it wasn't happening. I just finally drove myself around the band but these songs were coming to me, and I wasn't even writing them down because there was no point in it. I was not going to make another record. Well, turns out I did, and that was the There I Said It record that kind of broke everything open for me. You know, uh, USA Today, Top 50 of the Year, No Depression Magazine, Top 40 of the Year, I think, Tennessean, Top 10 of the Year, stuff like that, which I'd never gotten before and may never get again. But uh, those were the first honest songs I'd maybe ever written. 
all my songs up to that point had been, you know, either funny or third person narratives about other characters. It wasn't real. These songs were real. They were cries for help. And uh, I finally came up with something that resonated with people. Be honest, who to thunk? You know? <laughs> I met Johnny twice. Uh, actually played on the same bill with him. Government Cheese, of all people, played a benefit for the animal shelter in Hendersonville. And Johnny played, Waylon Jennings played, uh, I think Walk the West played, and uh, I have a Yamaha acoustic guitar in there that I used to get autographs on, and ironically, since I moved to Nashville, I haven't gotten but one or two autographs on it since then. It was all a young man's thing. I got Johnny Cash's autograph on that guitar. I got Waylon Jennings. I got Leon Redbone, Tiny Tim. Uh, <laughs> he came to Bowling Green with a circus once. It was kind of sad, but uh, it was he's a sweet guy. He was a really nice guy. Uh, Leon Redbone, Jerry Jeff Walker, Steve Earle, all of Jason and the Nashville Scorchers, uh, Dwayne Eddy. Um, there's Sheba again, folks, jumping around. Um, you tell me so, about yeah. that Tiny Tim story at the circus? Um, I was the morning man at a country AM station in Bowling Green, WLBJ, and uh, the... Shrine Circus was coming to town with a special guest star, Tiny Tim. And Tiny Tim phoned in to the radio station to promote the show, and I interviewed him on the air. And uh, as DJs often do, I was invited to be the local MC of the circus and introduce Tiny Tim. And it was an old-fashioned circus, a tent out uh, in the countryside a little bit, smelled like all the farm animals and, you know, beasts of the field that they use in a circus. And, uh, and there was a smattering of people there. And at a certain point, the, the drummer goes, ladies and gentlemen, Tiny Tim. And he comes out on this little red carpet and he goes up to a mic and you know, he sings, he sings tiptoe through the tulips and one or two others. This guy used to be one of the biggest stars in the world. And now he's here at a shrine circus. And, uh, it, you know, it was really, really sad. And I had, but I had my guitar and I was going to get his autograph on it and, uh, went behind the tent with Beth. We were, we were dating at the time and I gave, Tiny Tim, the fork that I used people to carve their names into the wood of the guitar with. And he carved his name in it. And then he uh, played the guitar a bit. And he started singing. And he looked heavenward as he was singing. And he got just this look of peace on his face. Um, it was a really beautiful moment. Because he was, I love Tiny Tim. He, he was not just a novelty. He was an artist in his own way. He's very much his own, you know, there's only one Tiny Tim. And anytime anybody ever puts Tiptoe Through the Tulips on the stereo, I will listen to it. I've got that record. <laughs> he, he was a sweet guy. He was a really beautiful man. He was very nice to me. I got hired to be in Todd Snyder's band right in the thick of the nervous breakdown year, 2003. 
his bass player didn't want to work anymore on the road. So I was Todd's friend. So he called me. Uh, and uh, I had nothing else to live for. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I said, sure. And uh, my first gig with Todd was in a sold-out theater at a big casino in Reno, Nevada. No warm-up at the slow bar or anything straight from never having played bass in my life to being in a sold out theater. And I learned the hard way. Uh, the bass player Otis is the only person in the band who has to know the song exactly all the way through. When it's time to go to the bridge, you got to go to the bridge. The drummer's the only, all, all the drummer needs to know is when to stop. And the piano player and the guitar player can kind of hold a note if they're not sure what's going on and then jump right back in. Not the bass player. The bass player has to go exactly where the song's supposed to go. And I was terrified up there. Um, but, but it got better. And we had, uh, you know, we had some gigs. We played this same casino over and over again. We had some gigs that were like Springsteen-style stuff. And people have asked me over the years, I, I learned a lot from Todd. I learned a lot about how to put on a show and uh, what to do and what not to do. And people have asked me over the years, is he really that effed up when he's <laughs> up there on stage? Is that an act or is he really that far gone? And let me assure you, he is really that effed up. It's no act. <laughs> I have, I have seen the man get in uncommonly baked state and go out on stage, and every show I've ever seen him do, he never walks out on stage without a set list carefully composed that tells a story for the entire evening, and I've never heard him open his mouth without knowing exactly what he's going to say. And those lessons really stuck with me. He's a, he's, he's a genius at that stuff, but he's also he's a very hard worker, discovered on the road that Todd might stay up till 2 a.m. drinking wine, but he's up at 6 writing songs every day. I saw him last night at the Kroger in East Nashville, and uh, I, I think he was barefoot, <laughs> and he had on these white and blue striped pants that I... I tried all night last night to figure out whether or not they were pajamas or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to think they were, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I appreciate you inviting me into your living room and uh, and chatting with me today. I appreciate you, Otis, both as an artist and a person. Oh, gosh, man. That's, a, that's high praise. I'm not sure that I deserve. I'm sure you deserve it. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Tommy for inviting me over to his living room in South Nashville. And you can find out everything you need to know about Tommy at TommyWomack.net. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, 
We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode every Wednesday for free. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.